Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, as always. We start in thanks in every prayer that we offer to you. Thankful, Lord, for so many good things in our life and so many ways in which your grace has been poured out upon us. And for the opportunity in, in each week to hear more of what you have for us in your word and to share that with others who love you like we do. I'm mindful this morning, Father, of, of little things I'm thankful for as I consider what you've done. Thankful, Father, that we have such a talented group of, of people volunteering to service in music and all that that offers us as we worship. And thank you, Father, for um, a comfortable, if modest, building, something that we can rely on that's suitable to what you need us to do here in this location. Thank you, Father, that we have uh, a young congregation, many in the, con- in the congregation who are, who are children or teens or young adults. Father, that's a blessing. So often small churches are, are not so evenly distributed, and that is a, a sign, Father, that you have desired this church to have a life that is full. We also thank you, Father, for wisdom in the elders of our church, those men and women who are older, wise by their years of experience, and willing to share that experience with us, Father. You've covered the bases. You've taken care of our needs. You've accommodated both strengths and weaknesses in this body. And thank you, Father, that we can see it now. Unlike so often the case, Father, we don't know what we have till it's gone, and I pray, Father, that we would know what we have even now. And most of all, Father, thank you for a church that values your word, that opens your word, that studies your word. And I do pray, Father, lives your word. For that too, Father, is something that many only notice it in its absence. But we have it in its fullness, Father, by your spirit. Thank you for that. And now, Father, in the weakness of my abilities, my limited knowledge and skill and And my blurry vision of things, spiritual father, I ask you would nevertheless overcome all those deficits and speak truth to this room full of your children as you desire it, using me, Father, as you care to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the past month, we have been in chapter 1, following Paul's outline of grace in this book. And hallelujah, we're coming to the end of that that long, slow trek through the chapter. He outlined in verses 3 through 14 all the ways in which the persons of the Godhead, all three of them, grant us favor, grant us grace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all working together to bring a plan of salvation and glory to fruition for each of us. I would sum all of that teaching up in one simple thought. We didn't stumble upon God's grace. God prepared salvation for us. He brought it to us. He confirmed it in us. And now He is dwelling within us to guarantee our future glory. It's all God. So now as we're going to move forward in Paul's letter, we need to remember why Paul has launched into this whole discourse on grace in the first place. Because the letter has a lot more to offer us, obviously. We learned as the early part of this letter when I started that Paul was teaching to a church in the city of Ephesus, a city that is preoccupied with wealth and success and power and pagan worship. And so as we learn back then, the temptations for believers living in this city were pretty great. Temptations to chase the world, to follow after what the world follows after, to boast in self, to glorify self, power, wealth, prestige. Those were all the noble pursuits of Ephesus. That would have been the natural thing to do if you wanted to fit in to the culture of this city. But the pursuit of those things, pursuit of power, wealth, success, fame, fortune, as they say, those pursuits hold the potential to conflict with our Christian duty. 
They distract us from the pursuit of Christ. They conflict with our witness and with our opportunities to build the kingdom. And they compete with righteousness of our inheritance in the kingdom. And that's why Paul has gone to such great lengths in this passage we've talked about, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That's one single sentence in Greek language. He launched into that passage explaining just how far the Lord has already gone in bestowing such wonderful things upon us in spiritual terms, in heavenly terms. He has secured us a place in the kingdom by faith in Christ. He has assured us of heavenly riches in a day to come. Things far beyond anything you'll find here. And He's done all of that, not because we achieve greatness, but because He is desiring to show us unmerited favor. You don't deserve what God's willing to give you by grace. And you can't lose what you didn't earn in the first place. That's a great comfort to anyone who is lost in the tide of desires that dominate our current world, isn't it? In fact, every student of Scripture, having reached the end of verse 14 in Ephesians 1, and having understood it, I hope, should feel compelled to fall to his or her knees in praise and in thanks for God's grace, for all the wisdom and mercy that he's shown us. Because it's an overwhelming, in my experience, awe-inspiring truth to appreciate all that God has done for us for no reason except he wanted to. In fact, look how Paul ends the passage. Right at the end of verse 14. He says, God's entire plan of grace for this church is to the praise of His glory. The whole plan was designed to inspire in us praise for Him, praise for His glory, not for anyone else's, certainly not for our own. The plan of redemption, all that future glory that He has waiting for us in the kingdom, all of the grace that He's poured out on us should just leave you in awe of what God has done. My wife once summed it up. She says, Why me? Why me? I get that God has enough power to do these things, but why did He do it for me? And I've always said, that question has no answer. And next Paul says, he also thanks the Lord for His grace in what He granted to Ephesus. Notice what he does next, verse 15 through 17. So we've come out of the long, single sentence. Paul now moves on with his main purpose in writing this letter. Verse 15, he says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith... In Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul says, and this is quite amazing to me, Paul says he didn't just thank the Lord for the grace that God gave him personally. I mean, that's that's obvious enough, right? Next time you're praying, be sure to remember the grace God has given you and thank Him for it to the praise of His name. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says in his prayers, he especially specifically told the Lord, thank you, Lord, for bringing grace to the church in Ephesus to bring that church into existence. He thanked the Lord for making Ephesus, he says, a loving church, a place that expressed love for all saints. And then he says, and this is the part that amazes me, he says, he never ceases to give thanks to God for this little miracle that a church could rise up out of this pagan lost city. He says he makes specific mention of the believers in Ephesus. And he does it regularly. And not only in Ephesus, by the way, Paul testifies elsewhere that he does the very same thing for other places. He says very similar things to the church in Rome, to the church in Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Think about that for a minute. Just think about what that means. How long do you think Paul's prayer list was? I mean, the list he carried around in his head or somehow 
on his iPad. How long was his list? How many prayer needs do you suppose Paul had personally? Paul says elsewhere in in his writing that he was often hungry and that he was often cold and that he was often beaten or oppressed by the devil or imprisoned or shipwrecked and on and on and on. Then there were all these ministry challenges, right? He was supposed to raise up leaders in certain places. He was trying to discern the Spirit's leading on where he was to go when he went to his next city. He had to contend with opposition. He had to find the right arguments when he went into the synagogues or when he stood in Athens and preached to the Greeks. You think about this man, of course, he's the Apostle Paul. He must have been a very spiritual man. He must have had a very good prayer life. We have to assume that. The kind of prayer life we all aspire to, right? How long was that list? Oh, and then on top of that, how many other people do you think may have come along in a day of Paul's life and said, would you pray for me? How much intercessory prayer do you think Paul had on his list? Can you imagine how long his prayer list was on an average day? I bet it took Paul literally hours of time during his day to complete his prayer list when he got the chance to do everything he wanted to do on that list. And I expect Paul devoted the necessary time to that because he was an apostle for the Gentile church. He was a key leader in the church as God had appointed. Now, on top of all of that, he says, and I take him at his word because what he's just spoken is in Scripture. That would tell me, friends, it's true. He says, nevertheless, that near the top of his prayer list, consistently, never ceasing, was a prayer of thanks to the Lord for believers in these various cities, including Ephesus. He thanked the Lord for grace, that God essentially gave fruit to Paul's ministry. That's effectively what he's saying. He went into a city like Ephesus or Corinth, and he came in with the message of the gospel, and he saw fruit. He saw a people for God raise up out of a pagan culture, and then as he goes back on his knees every night, he says, thank you, God, for that grace to them. Do you think about prayer in that way? Do you think about thanking the Lord for his grace, both in your own life, but, friends, also in the lives of others? When you think about it, that's the most important thing you could ever thank God for, isn't it? If grace is the start of every good work in anyone's life, then wouldn't it make sense that at the top of our prayer list we'd be thanking God that He came into the life of someone who did not know Him and, by the way, would not have known Him. And on His own decision, He chose to give that person an awareness of Himself in grace. And then not just one person, but a community of people. Having brought them together, in this case, in a loving way. Thankfulness in prayers, friends, will translate into contentment in your life. Here again, that may have been what's missing here in the church of Ephesus. They appear to have failed to recognize the magnitude of what had already been given to them in the grace of God. And as a result of a lack of thankfulness and a lack of awareness, that led them to continue seeking for the world's rewards to fill that empty hole in their heart. That problem of a lack of contentment had to be filled somehow. They're ignoring all that God had already given them in His grace, what was promised to come. In other words, never mind what had already come. And as a result, they keep looking. Looking for love in all the wrong places, as someone famously wrote, right? Notice Paul says in verse 17 that he also prayed beyond just thankfulness. He prayed for the Lord to give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that is of God. Paul uses the word spirit there in verse 17, not to literally mean the Holy Spirit. You already noticed back in verse 13, he said in verse 13 already that Ephesus already possessed the spirit of God. So he's not praying for that. They already have that. He's using the word spirit here euphemistically, like as in an attitude. He's praying that they would have an attitude of some kind. And what is that they need? An attitude of what? He says, Paul's asking the Lord to open their eyes to understand spiritual realities of their situation. An attitude of wisdom. 
concerning their current situation. They needed God, he says, to reveal spiritual truth to them so they could get the right attitude. This is the first indication we have in his letter, going all the way back to the beginning. First time now that we see that Paul knew not all was right in this city, which was his impetus for writing. Despite their love for one another in the body, because they do have love, that's evident, they're moving away from a reliance on Christ and His promises. They're departing, as we read earlier, from their first love. Do you remember the introduction to this letter that I gave before we even launched into the chapter? Back when we looked at what God wrote through John in the book of Revelation. That this city did eventually lose its first love. And we define first love as that initial desire to live in God's grace and serve the Lord who saved them. They still have salvation, but they've departed from this awareness. So Paul says, I now have to work to save the church from this fate. But notice something very important about how Paul responds to the problem. Notice Paul does not start by counseling them on behaviors. He doesn't say to this church, you know, your problem is you should stop doing X and start doing Y. You should make this change. You should go this different direction. And then certainly the church was engaged in some kind of bad behavior. I'm sure if nothing else, they were just neglectful of certain things they should be doing. And I bet they probably had started to move into some very unhealthy things within the culture. But Paul doesn't talk about that. Not yet. Later in this letter, he calls them out for some specific practices. But initially, he stops. He doesn't talk about their actions here. He goes to their thinking to their understanding. He knew that this church couldn't put godliness into action if they didn't understand what godliness requires. What you understand about the Lord through His Word will determine how you behave and whether you are as mature as you should be as a Christian. And Bible study is not sufficient to ensure obedient living. But it is absolutely necessary if you hope to have an opportunity to resist sin. Plenty of mature Christians still struggle with sin. Even as Paul says of himself in Romans 7, as a matter of fact. But you can't begin to solve that problem unless your mind is transformed by the knowledge of what's in God's Word. That's where it starts. So Paul says, I'm praying for you to get a revelation concerning a knowledge of God. Now Paul wrote this letter at a time in history when very few works of the New Testament were even available yet. So Paul had to pray in this case for the Lord to give a revelation to this church. They they certainly knew the Old Testament scripture, but Paul knew that the knowledge they needed in this case was not going to be found in the Old Testament scripture. Not, not Not as the specific issue they needed to address. So he prayed that God would actually reveal something to this church, which in fact God did eventually through Paul's own writing. But today, friends, we wouldn't pray this. We wouldn't pray what Paul prayed specifically here because, friends, we don't need a new revelation. The grace of God has given us this. So we have all of the counsel of God's word now. So Paul says, I pray for God to reveal something to you. We would say, open your Bibles. But in both cases, we're seeking the same thing, wisdom. We could echo one part of Paul's prayer. We could echo the part that says, God, give us an attitude of wisdom, a spirit of wisdom here. Because that's the key to sanctification. If a believer does not value spiritual wisdom, they have no hope much less any experience in sanctified living. If your attitude is this, friends, if your attitude is Bible knowledge is important, sure, but it's really just for the pastor or for that scholar, then, friends, my suggestion is if you take an inventory of your life, you're probably going nowhere fast. You're probably standing still. Because the reality is our entire walk with Christ starts with knowing Him. Warren Wearsby made this great observation. He once wrote that to know God personally is salvation. 
To know Him increasingly is sanctification, and to know Him fully is glorification. In the end, friends, it's about knowing Him, experiencing Him. And so it would seem that in Ephesus, you have a church that did not value spiritual wisdom. Perhaps they valued earthly wisdom. Perhaps it was about money. Perhaps it was about sex or power, or achievement. But whatever it was that got them excited, it wasn't the pursuit of spiritual wisdom. Their eyes were blinded by shiny objects. We always talk about that in our culture, right? I chased after the shiny object. It's a way of saying, I got off the point I should have been on, and I moved on to something frivolous because it temporarily got me very excited, and I got distracted by it. Sometimes it's a possession, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's a career opportunity, sometimes it's a sport, sometimes it's whatever it is, it's a shiny object until we finally snap out of it and we realize we've wasted a bunch of time. Paul says, I'm praying for this church to snap out of it. Verse 18, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Do you notice how many times him or he or his is mentioned there? Where does real power, real authority, real riches lie? Paul says there in verse 18, I want them to have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. You may know this is where we get songs that talk about open the eyes of my heart. It comes from here. And now we know Paul is speaking euphemistically. Your heart does not have a couple eyeballs on it. We understand that. But to see with the heart, euphemistically, means to have spiritual understanding. So if you're going to have the eyes of your heart, so to speak, enlightened, that would mean having spiritual understanding, illuminating you, uh, having it increase. So just as your physical eyes see a whole lot better when there's a lot of light, Similarly, your spiritual understanding grows when God brings illumination, when he brings understanding. And that's what Paul wants here. He's not asking this church to figure it out on their own. He's asking that the Lord would open their eyes a little bit spiritually and explain things to them. And he says, I want you to know two core truths. First, he says, I want the church to understand the hope of their calling. The hope of their calling. If there's one thing, friends, I would offer for the church of our day in our culture in these times, it would be this one thing. This one thing would transform the life of the body of Christ in the world today. The understanding, the hope of their calling. The word calling there is a reference to salvation. To salvation itself. That is to say, every believer is called by faith into a walk with the Lord through His Spirit. And our calling, Paul says brings to us a special hope. But like the word faith itself, hope is a word that requires an object. You know, people who talk about being a man or woman of faith. I was visiting my father in his retirement home this week and having breakfast with him. Another older gentleman sitting at the table there. We started chit-chatting and I told him I'm a pastor. And he says, oh yes, I'm very spiritual. He has a lot of faith. I tried to press on that a little bit to understand what he meant. And, And he meant what I think the world means when they use that term. 
It's a way of saying, I want to identify with you. I want to feel like you and I have something in common. You tell me you're a Christian. Well, I'm spiritual. I have faith. And of course, that begs the question, right? What do you have faith in? Because faith is a word that has to have an object or it's a meaningless word. You have faith in something. A God of some kind. But if you don't know what that thing is, that object is, then your faith is really meaningless. It's, it's a word that has no anchor. It doesn't mean anything. In this case, Paul says, we all have a hope. You have it. But it begs a question. Hope in what? What is that hope in? What are you saying, Paul, when you say that we should all have an understanding of our hope, of our calling? Well, our calling brings a hope that is a trust in something that has not yet come to pass. Because Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8, 8.24, that the word hope is always, by definition, a future-looking word. He says in 8.24, For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But we hope for what we do not see. With perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Alright, so what is it that we have as our hope that is something of the future? It is not something of the present. And it comes with our calling. It comes with being a child of God. Paul says this is something the church needs to understand. And if they understood and appreciated it better, it would transform their walk as a Christian. Well, he explains it at the next part of verse 18. He says, it is the riches of the glory of Christ's inheritance for the saints. Simply put, it's your life in the coming kingdom. It's that hope you have that one day you'll receive a new body to replace this old, decrepit, dying one that we're all shackled to for a few decades. It's our hope in a heavenly wealth found in the kingdom that will replace the wealth of unrighteousness that perishes with this world. It is our hope of a sinless life spent serving Christ in place of this frustrating experience of serving mankind on earth. It's the whole package. All of that future, wrapped up, tied in a bow, is your single hope of the eternity that awaits you because you are in Christ. The more real that future is to you now, the less attractive this world is to you in the meantime. Because you, you know what's coming. I remember a friend of mine one time had to order a really nice car and it took months to get. And he always took good care of his cars. He was always very attentive to how his car looked and so on. And once he ordered the new one, all of a sudden he could not care less how his car looked. The one he was trading in meant nothing to him. It was, it was as good as out of his mind. He already thought about the new one coming. He didn't care anything more about it. I don't even think he changed the oil once after that. Well, in a sense, once you get a firm understanding of what's coming, the certainty of it, the beauty of it, the glory of it, how much better it is than what you have, suddenly seeking to make this world all that much better starts to feel like changing the oil on your rental car. Why am I working on this when I know this is coming? That's the problem with the church, I think, in many places. They've become so focused on this world because they've not been taught enough about what's coming that they've lost the hope of their calling. And so their focus becomes immediate, worldly, temporal, and the like. That's Paul's first concern. To the degree you remain focused on the eternal, you care that much less for the temporal. It inoculates you, I think, from the excesses of today. It defends you against the temptations to stop seeking to serve Christ and to start serving yourself. It just is a natural pull from this world toward the future. And then the second thing Paul prays for, he wants the church to understand the surpassing greatness of Christ's power made available to his children through his spirit. He's urging the believer to contrast the here and now with the eternity to come in both riches and in power. 
The riches of this world, friends, temporary. I mean, you can work really hard and possess a good chunk of it. And many people do. But you've got to eventually let it go. Your house is going to deteriorate. Your car is going to get dense. Don't you hate it the day after you buy a car, you get a dent in the side of the car? Or in our house, every time we put new carpet in, a dog or cat pees on it like the next day. It's, it's like inevitable. We put new carpet in one of our new homes when we moved one time in the distant past. And the day they put in the carpet, we go into my daughter's bedroom, remember this? We go into Catherine's bedroom, and she has decided to take dry erase markers. And I don't know how, but they got all over the carpet, and that stuff does not come out of carpet. It may come off glass boards, it does not come out of carpet. It was the same day we put the carpet in. Your baubles fall apart. They lose their luster. These things just have temporary value to us in any case. And by the way, even if you're particularly careful and you keep something for a lifetime and you keep it pristine the whole time, guess what? you still got to relinquish it at death. You can't keep it. And even then, when you work your entire life to obtain these things, you actually rarely do obtain them anyway. Not the one you really want, right? There's always something out of reach. There's always something better. You get the regular... But then you wished you could have afforded the, the deluxe. You get the deluxe, but then the neighbor gets the limited edition. And when you get the limited edition, Apple releases a new one the next day. You can't win. This is really the futility of a world that's fallen and wearing out. In other words, if you make your life's goal chasing what the world offers, it is literally like chasing your tail. You never get it, and what you do get, you're not satisfied with. Surely we all must possess some things. I am not advocating here for an aesthetics life in which you live literally with a robe on a corner of a street with a cup. That's the extreme that you go to if you're not listening to the words of Scripture properly. The goal is not to have nothing. The goal is to be owned by nothing. There are necessities of life, and God provides them. And you may even have time and money for a few special things. Fine. But are your nice things working for you in service to Christ? Or are they barriers to spiritual wisdom and sanctified living? Is the pursuit of possessing such things competing with your first love? That's the problem in Ephesus. So Paul contrasts worldly life with a life lived with eyes for eternity. And he declares that the hope of every Christian should lie in our eternal inheritance and in the surpassing greatness of God's power to secure it for us. Isn't that beautiful? Paul explains in verses 20 through 23, your hope is not a foolish hope. The Father has already demonstrated His power to keep promises concerning your future, so you have every reason to hope in it. And here's what He's demonstrated. First of all, He says He raised Christ from the dead. And He delivered Christ into His right hand in heavenly places. And then He says He put all things in subjection to Christ, even His enemy and ultimately the church body. So if you need proof of the Father's ability to keep the promises that He's given to you and I concerning our inheritance in the kingdom, then just consider what He's already done for your fellow heir, Christ. Jesus has already received all of the things that we as fellow heirs have coming to us in our future. So Paul says Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection elsewhere in Scripture, which is to simply say Jesus is the first heir of God to receive the things promised to all of us. And we already studied earlier in this chapter, you and I are fellow heirs in Christ, right? If we're fellow heirs, then we share similar future with Him. So let me ask you this, are you tired of that weak and dying body? Well, don't spend too much time trying to make it last forever. Instead, put your hope in the Father's power to raise that body from the dead and give you a new perfect one in a day to come. And why do you have confidence in that hope? Because He's already done it once for Christ. You're a fellow heir. That means you have the same future. Are you tired of owning things that wear out? 
Are you tired of them breaking down? Are you tired of them being stolen? Or are you tired of them rusting away? Well, don't spend your life trying to preserve them unnecessarily. Don't put in overtime to afford the upgrades or the replacements or next year's model. Instead, put your hope in the Father's power to grant you beautiful things in heaven that will never wear out and that nothing here could ever equal anyway. And how do you know he'll keep that promise? Because he already gave Christ dominion, he says, over the entire creation at the occasion of his rising from the grave. And so, finally, if you're growing weary of enemies of one kind or another, People who persecute you, people who take advantage of you, people who abuse you, people who disappoint you. Well, don't waste time on conflict. Don't waste time on revenge. Don't grow angry. Don't get fearful. Put your hope in the Father who will one day put you in Christ's government in the kingdom where you will rule over all who oppose him. Because he has already put Christ in that position and you're a fellow heir. You see how it's not really about if, it's only about when. Your future and Christ's future are tied together because you are fellow heirs with him. And that is our hope. So when we think about our hope, our hope is not our salvation. Friends, that's already been done by faith. It's over. You're justified. That work is finished. You can't hope for what you already have. So what are you hoping in? You're hoping in the future that comes for those who have faith. But friends, you can have these things given to you by faith, by God's grace, and yet not understand them. In other words, it can be true, and yet you don't live like it's true. You don't think about it. You've actually not taken hold of the hope that comes with your salvation. That is a sad truth. And the writer of Hebrews acknowledges it in chapter 6 of Hebrews, when he says in 6.17, he says, In the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, who's that? You and I, right? Heirs. He says, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose. He interposed with an oath so that two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who take refuge have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Now, Hebrews is such a difficult book sometimes to understand because of the way the writer moves through the text. But let me explain what he just said. He said, God wanted to show all the fellow heirs of Christ, you and I, that his promises are unchangeable, that you can put confidence in the future and not worry that he's going to change the plan on you. And so as God declared these promises first to Abraham, he says he gave Abraham both the word of the covenant and later he made an oath for Abraham's sake. He gave Abraham an oath promising to keep the earlier word. And that's why the writer says that God took two things in which it is impossible for him to lie, his word and his oath, and did so just to make sure that Abraham would have no doubt that what God has promised will come to pass. And what is it that he promised Abraham? Well, that one day he and his heirs would live in a kingdom of peace, ruling over the world. And that never happened in Abraham's lifetime. But it will happen in his resurrected life, in the kingdom, the one that we'll share with him. And he says he did this so that his heirs, God's heirs, would have strong encouragement. Notice this, strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. What a shame it is that it's possible for a Christian to have this hope because it comes through faith by God's grace. We have this thing assured to us by those terms, by grace, and yet we don't take hold of it. It's there. It's not changing because we didn't hold it. But we don't know it. Notice in verse 18, he says, This hope is a refuge for us. What does he mean? He means it's a refuge against the temptations of the world. It's a refuge against fear and anxiety. It's a refuge against disappointment and depression. 
And it's a refuge against excess and greed. When you're hoping in something that's assured by God's power and it's waiting for you in the future, you won't feel, as often anyway, that desire to make up the difference now. You can find contentment in whatever God brings you. Or takes away from you, by the way. But you have to take hold of it. That is to say, you have to understand it. You have to have spiritual wisdom to recognize it's real. And that's something that a believer has to act on. That is, in their understanding, they have to learn, they have to grasp it, they have to think through it. And friends, not everyone does. So Paul prays for the sake of the church in Ephesus that they would be enlightened, that they'd have this spiritual wisdom so they'd finally experience the hope that was actually already theirs. I'll end with a couple of questions for you to think about this week. First of all, have you taken hold of your hope? You may know it, certainly you've heard it now, but when you think about your everyday decisions, when you look at your checkbook and your calendar, are those things directed by your hope in this eternal future that is yours assuredly? Or do you live almost as if you don't have that hope? And secondly, friends, is this hope a refuge in your life? Do you run to this in the face of trouble? I had this little text conversation last night with these missionaries I mentioned in Seattle. They were so sad to tell me that they had lost everything. And I think it's funny, they apologized to me because they felt bad for having lost the thing we just gave them for this trip. And I told them, you don't have to apologize to me. You're the victims here. You know, this is not your fault. And then I added a couple words about the hope we have for the future and things that or of this world are passing anyway, and let's not put our trust in them, etc., etc. And they responded back with a very similar sentiment, something that confirmed in my heart that they saw this in the proper perspective. They weren't happy about it, but they weren't crushed by it either. They found a refuge in their hope for what God has planned for them, such that easy come, easy go. God will take care of them, but they're not going to lose their confidence in life over one moment. Moments that we know are coming sooner or later. So friends, have you taken hold of your hope? Is it a refuge in times when the world lets you down? And lastly, do you pray for an attitude of wisdom? An attitude of understanding the Word of God in these things? Do you let your knowledge of what is in the Word drive you into that hope because you see it as the only thing that matters in this world? And if it's the case, friends, that you're not necessarily aware of your hope, you're not thinking about it as a refuge, you're certainly not praying for wisdom to see those things in everyday life. Well, then, that's our starting point for our week ahead, isn't it? Some attitude adjustment. Let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for an attitude adjustment. By your word, by the confidence we have in the promises you've given to us. Don't let us use the word hope like the world does, Father, as in a wish. We don't hope for things the way the world does, Father. But we have set our hope in things certain because of the certainty of your promises. And if our hope lies in something certain, Father, then we can certainly take refuge in it when we need to. When we see the world letting us down, when people let us down when our expectations aren't met, when our desires aren't fulfilled. It's a clear sign, Father, that we've put our our hope and our desire in the wrong thing. Help keep our eyes up for eternity, Father. Help us keep our attitude looking at what is promised and sure and not what is temporary and passing. Help us to keep in check our, our desires for excess or greed or our fears and our anxieties for what's lost. Help us to be content, Father. For we know that you have given us so much more than we could ever give ourselves. What a fool we would be to trade that 
to put our emphasis on the here and now. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder. We pray, Father, we'd be useful in your economy to tell others about this as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.